If you have a copy of the Scriptures, join us please in Luke chapter 9, the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, as we continue going through Luke's Gospel together. I think that's the first time I ever sang that hymn. It's first for me, at least. Maybe a first for others also. But wonderful truth, wonderful prayer to be used of the Lord, to desire to be a vessel, meet for the Master's use. That's the prayer. To not live our lives empty, but to be filled with the fullness of God, an instrument in the hand of God, and in the center of God's will, doing what He has called us to do. We're going to read again from verse 28, though we have already dealt with the Mount of Transfiguration. We will read that just to help us a little with context and read through to where we will be giving consideration this evening, um, including the beginning of verse 43. And so we'll read through to the beginning of verse 43. So let's hear the word of the Lord as we find it here in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. May the Lord give us ears to hear His truth. And it came to pass about in eight days after these sayings, He took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as He prayed, the fashion of His countenance was altered, and His raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with Him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory, and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud, and overshadowed them, And they feared as they entered into the cloud. There came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, For he is mine only child, and lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, and he foameth again, and bruising him, hardly departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet a-coming, the devil threw him down, and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. Amen. May the Spirit give us the enlightenment we need in his word, instruct our hearts as we consider it here tonight. Let us pray again, looking to the Lord for his particular favor in the consideration of his truth. Lord, help us to live our lives as vessels that are emptied that we may be used. My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. 
Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim, is higher ground. Thou hast given each of us gifts. Thou hast called us to live for thy glory. May every life here be deposited in the hands of our sovereign God, placed into the hands of Christ to be used by him however he sees fit. We surrender our hearts afresh. We give ourselves to thee, Lord. Confessing all our sins, we cry, please, Lord, fill us with thy spirit. Do so even now. Grant the preacher and to hearer the outpouring of thy spirit. Fill me, Lord. May it be as in the day when Peter stood in Cornelius' home and the Spirit fell on all them that heard the word. Grant it may be so. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The name David Brainerd has gone down in American history as one of the most remarkable missionaries ever to be produced, as it were, from these shores. Passing into glory at the age of 29, he had not long to make his mark He had much time to make a difference or to live for the glory of Christ. As a young man, he lamented, quote, I could not find out how to believe or to come to Christ, nor what faith was. He was left in despair spiritually, unable to come to a sense of peace with God. Being increasingly exercised in soul, he was left in a helpless condition Until one July evening, when attempting to pray, he recorded his own conversion in these words. As I was walking in a dark, thick grove, unspeakable glory seemed to open to the view and apprehension of my soul. I do not mean any external brightness, for I saw no such thing, nor do I intend any imagination of a body of light somewhere in the third heavens or anything of that nature." But it was a new inward apprehension or view that I had of God, such as I never had before, nor anything which had the least resemblance of it. I stood still, wondered, and admired. I knew that I never had seen before anything comparable to it for excellence and beauty. It was widely different from all the conceptions that ever I had of God or things divine. I had no particular apprehension of any one person in the Trinity, either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Ghost, but it appeared to be divine glory that I then beheld. My soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God, such a glorious divine being, and I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that He should be God over all forever and ever. That's His conversion. For the first time in His life, seeing God. I hope you have some experience of seeing the Lord. Again, like Him, not in some visible way, but in some meaningful way where you know God has done a work in your soul. You're aware of things that prior you were not aware of, truths that were perhaps meaningless or didn't seem to bed into the soul, all of a sudden become alive. The promise of forgiveness prior didn't seem to sink into the soul, but then all of a sudden it seemed like this is the most wonderful promise and it has been entrusted to me and it is now mine. The working of the Spirit 
testifying within the soul that you're now the Lord's. But it wasn't all plain sailing for Brainerd. You read through his journal, you will see that. I'm not sure we may have some of those journals and the memoirs in our book room that you may be interested in. But there were low times in his life. He recorded on one occasion, quote, I had for many months entirely lost all hope of being made instrumental of doing any special service for God in the world. It has appeared entirely impossible that one so vile should be thus employed for God. End quote. Months of feeling he was too wicked ever to be used. The despair over sin, the shortcomings of the believer in his life. Such is the Christian life. Seasons of joy unspeakable, seasons of lost hope. That is a Christian life. The passage before us is a reminder, the text that we will be considering together after the Mount of Transfiguration is a very pertinent reminder that the only dependable, reliable, and perfectly consistent man that ever lived is Jesus Christ. The disciples descend from the mount, having seen the glory of Christ unveiled before them, having what may be something of the Shekinah glory cloud enveloping them, and hearing the voice of the Father speak to them, testifying to His Son. What an experience. This is a mountaintop experience. But then they go down, and they are to see the reality of life, that it's not all mountaintop. And as we will consider these verses, we will learn again that if we have needs and burdens, whatever those needs and burdens may be, that we need to bring them to Christ. In fact, those burdens are appointed by God to drive you to Christ. So whatever difficulty you're facing, whatever hardship, whatever turmoil of mind or life, things practical, things mental, things spiritual, God has appointed them to drive you to His Son. The passage before us is given a much fuller treatment by Mark, the verses particularly 37 through the beginning of 43. And Mark therefore goes into much more detail, and it's tempting to draw extensively from the record of Mark to fill in the gaps. But look under inspiration gives us a much more concise record. I trust the Lord will help us as we consider it. We'll make some mention of things that we find in Matthew and Mark as well, but we'll, we'll focus our attention as we have it here in Luke's Gospel. And we're taking our theme, our title, from the language of verse 43, as a result of all that happens and the Lord's deliverance of this boy, they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. And so our theme tonight is amazement in the presence of Jesus. Amazement in the presence of Jesus. And I want you to note with me, first of all, the amazement is partially due to the impossibility of the case. The amazement is partially due to the impossibility of the case. Look at verse 37. It came to pass that on the next day, 
When they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. And though a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departeth from him. The case is sad, but preceding the case that's given to us is language that it seems to indicate perhaps that the transfiguration was a nighttime event. I can't say that definitively, but since they came down the next day, and since the fact we know the disciples were tired, it may, as you pull it all together, give indication that our Lord was spending the entire night again, as He did at other occasions, on the mountaintop in communion, only on this occasion with the miracle and the unveiling of His glory in the transfiguration of our Savior. By the time they return, the crowd has already gathered. But immediately there is this tragic scene, this man. Behold, a man, verse 38. We are to see this man of the company crying out, looking for our Savior's attention. So this is the impossible case. And it's seen, first of all, in the man's despairing cry. Look at his despairing cry where he, he, he says to the Lord, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is my only child. He cries in part because he is his only child, his only son. This adds an extra edge. We've, we've seen this before. Others that our Lord dealt with that had one child. This is the same scenario again. This man has an extra lament within his soul, an extra expression of exasperation and desperation within his heart because this is the only child that he has. His only son. So he cries in despair. Have you ever had an experience where there's just a sense that there's only one thing or one matter that is pressing upon your soul? There's a certain singularity that comes upon you when there's only one thing upon your heart. That's actually why I encourage when we come to the place of prayer on Wednesday nights, when we come to corporate prayer, when we pray at home, we pray ourselves, we have lists of things to pray for and about. But when we gather corporately, I encourage that we bring together, as we come together, we bring our particular burdens. What I mean by that is, what is the one thing that's pressing upon your soul? What is the one burden that you face in life? What is the one matter that, that seems to press upon you more than anyone else? And when you do that, you get a wonderful sense of, of covering the ground in the prayer meeting. It's not just the pastor brings you a prayer list and then everyone feels the need to be stuck to this prayer list and we all go down through these things, and there's nothing wrong with prayer lists, but, but to come with that particular burden that's on your soul. Mothers, you can pray for your children in a way that the Sunday school teacher cannot pray for them, the way the pastor cannot pray for them. You feel it. A day does not pass, but you feel it. That's your burden. That's your concern. That's the singular thing that God has brought into your life that you are to bring before Him and live in the light of that burden. God brings us into seasons where it seems as if there's nothing we can get into our mind or focus upon but one thing. That was certainly the case whenever I was lost after my mother's conversion. My sister was saved. The only thing that mattered to my mom was, was me, my lost condition. I saw it. I, I, 
as, as even in my unregenerate state, I can see that this is the only thing that matters to this woman. And that concentrated sense of, of prayer and burden, that's a gift from the Lord, parent. That sense of feeling that, that this is the only thing that matters to me right now, that is in the providence and sovereign working of the Lord, that is what God brings into your life to drive you and direct you in the place of prayer. So it was for this man. He cries in part because this is his only son, he also cries in part because man has failed him. Oh, I imagine we're not told, but he may have went to physicians. He may have went to other religious leaders. He may have went to all sorts of people. He, he, he may have tried everything. But then, then he hears about the disciples of the Lord Jesus, and particularly the Lord himself. And so he heads in that direction, tries to find the Lord upon, upon failing to find the Lord. Well, at least he finds one of some of his disciples that are there. But alas, they can do nothing for him. They're unable to make any difference. You think that's a mistake? Oh, certainly the Lord has a multivariate thing going on here in terms of lessons. He has lessons for his people as well as lessons for the man and lessons for the crowd. And he's always working in a multivariate way. There's never one singular thing that the Lord is doing from his perspective there are thousands and millions of things all converging and fulfilling His will at any one given moment. But this man is being taught something by the failure of the disciples. He is being taught that I need Christ, that I need Him, that no one can satisfy the need that I have right now but Jesus Christ. Now, the apostles were to reflect that through their ministry. Other times when they did have success and healing, no doubt it was in the name of Jesus Christ as we find in the book of Acts, and all glory goes to Jesus Christ. You remember the question that came from the religious leaders too, Peter and so on, by what power or by what name have you done this? And all glory then is ascribed to Christ. But in this particular instance, the Lord is pleased to, to, to teach that there, there always is this, this need to go to Christ. It's always Him. It's not His people that can help. Have you ever been let down by God's people? If you haven't, you will. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. And you're going to face that, and you're going to be really upset. And you may go through a little season, a little period where you're angry. You're angry because you were let down by God's people. And you can be angry. Go ahead. Be angry. Then ask yourself, what benefit is that anger having towards the circumstance? What difference is it making? Be angry at the Lord's people? Sure, they're sinners. Saved by grace, yes. Have responsibility. Are called to be like the Lord. But the Lord will appoint seasons where you will see the failure even in his people, so that you're reminded you have to get to Christ. So you can hear this man in his despair. Look at it. Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son. He doesn't even tell him what to do, he just says, Look upon my son. 
Those who assume upon the mercy of Christ, the sympathy of the Lord Jesus, or has he just come to a point where he no longer knows how to pray? And he's just asking the Lord, just look at it, Lord. Look at it. You know, the early church prayed the same way. Whenever the apostles were threatened, don't teach in this name anymore. And the threats come to them, and they all come back, and they report to the church. Here's what they've said, and then they pray. Acts chapter 4. And as they pray, they don't pray, Lord, destroy these men. Wipe them out. Get rid of them. Nor do they even pray, convert them. What did they pray? Behold their threatenings. Behold their threatenings. Look at them, Lord. Look at them and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may preach thy word. That's, that's how they prayed. I'll tell you, beloved, there are times you don't know how to pray. You don't know what way to bring the matter before the Lord. You think you do. You think this is what needs to be done. But if you just took, to take a step back, sometimes you realize, you know, I actually don't know what needs to be done. But the Spirit maketh intercession for us. And we come, therefore, and just ask the Lord, look upon it, Lord. Look upon it. Parents, yes, pray for their conversion. Pray for the salvation of your children. But sometimes, sometimes when you're brought to that moment where they're really going wayward, they're really going downhill, they're being particularly reluctant and bullheaded, stubborn. Sometimes all we can do is say, Lord, look, look at him. Look upon my son. Look upon my daughter. Look upon my spouse. Look, Lord. Yes. You see, the impossibility of this in this man's despairing cry. But also... It's seen in the son's demon possession, not only in the father's despairing cry, but in the son's demon possession. Verse 39 goes on to say, And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, and that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departeth from him. Note here the symptoms of his demon possession. The symptoms of his demon possession. We're told that he taketh him. The Spirit taketh him, that is, seizes upon him. And then you have the record that he suddenly crieth out, that is, out of nowhere there are shrieks and screams that come from his boy. Try to, try to get it into your mind. Try to picture the scene. Then he teareth him, that is, he throws him into a convulsion, involuntary movements. He then foameth. The convulsions continue until there's a frothing of saliva coming from the mouth. And then bruises him. He is mauled, he is injured in some fashion. 
The symptoms, of course, looked like that of a severe seizure. And if you read the record of Matthew 17, verse 15, the cry that comes from the Father is, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. Son says he's epileptic. He has showing epileptic symptoms. But the scripture may explain that this is not epilepsy, medical epilepsy. It is, it looks like it. The symptoms are similar, but the cause is not purely medical. We can show forth symptoms of all sorts of things, but it's never the same thing that's causing the symptoms. So you could go to your doctor and say, I have a sore throat. But it's not always strep, is it? All sorts of things that cause sore throats. In this case, you have what looks like epilepsy, but, but the reason, the reason for it is an evil spirit. It must therefore be noted also that there is such a thing as epilepsy, and it's nothing to do with evil spirits. So if you see someone with epilepsy, it's, it's not always an evil spirit. Perhaps we might even say it's unlikely that it is an evil spirit. But that's what the Spirit of God tells us here. He looks like someone who suffers from epilepsy. But the Lord tells us this is caused by an evil spirit. And the work of the demon was so severe that it made him unable to hear and speak. In Mark's account, verse, chapter 9, verse 25 It says that Jesus rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. So here you have the symptoms of his demon possession. It is is a frightening scene. It is not pleasant. The handiwork of the devil never is pleasant, you see. When the devil gets his hands on something, it is to steal, kill, and destroy Oh, he has very subtle ways of going about it. And he can lure you in with promises of various natures and and have all sorts of uh, glittery packages that initially seem to be really fun, but it's leading you to destruction. Note also the frequency of his demon possession. Not only the symptoms of it, but the frequency of it. The present tenses that are used in the grammar of this verse show in a vivid way that this is something that repeatedly occurred. And this frequency is expressed also in Matthew 17 verse 15 where the record gives us that oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. This is part of the way that he inflicted physical pain and suffering upon the boy. Throwing him into the fire, throwing him into bodies of water to try and destroy him. You recall, you recall the man we made mention of earlier who was out in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones? You remember? We've dealt with that passage already. You remember? This is, this is legion. He is filled with all sorts of, of evil demons. And they are doing their best to destroy him. And I can't remember if I remarked on it on that occasion, but I remark on it now that when you see Christ casting those thousands of demons into the swine, they immediately run downhill headlong into the water to be drowned, showing the intent of Satan that if he gets his way, he will not hesitate to destroy. 
Often, what keeps us and preserves us is the Lord himself. The Lord's restraining even Satan's work within our lives at times when we are in an unregenerate state. I could go into Scripture and start dealing with the evidences of God's common grace and restraining men. You can find it in various passages of Scripture. You can, you can find it even in dealing with Cain. And Cain's scared that everyone's going to kill him. And yet God prevents that. He restrains man from, from taking those matters into his hands. Or you see it with Abimelech also. He takes Sarah, wants to have Abraham's wife as his own. And then God removes and makes them all barren. And, and again, this is, a, this is God restraining, preventing sin from being performed and many other passages where you find it. We're told also here, look again at the end of verse 39, this spirit hardly departeth from him. That is, he's reluctant to leave the boy. This is a characteristic of Satan. He does not engage in his work half-heartedly. He throws himself into it. This spirit doesn't want to leave him. He wants to destroy him. And so basically the boy hardly has any peace or rest from this spirit. It's not pleasant. Peter and James and John have just been on this mountaintop. <laughs> While the passage tells us that they didn't talk about it, Perhaps one of the things that hindered this sharing of that event was that they're immediately confronted with the ugliness of life and sin. No point bragging about your experiences when you're immediately facing the ugliness of sin. Oh, Satan... He had a hold on this boy. Does he, have, does he have a hold on you? Does he have a hold on you? Well, it may not show itself like this, but that's the question to ask. Does Satan have a hold on me? To what degree is that evident? If he knew the entirety of the testimony of your life, As we said this morning, this is not someone to be bargained with. You don't play games with the devil. I don't know how this boy ended up this way. We're not told. Secondly, the amazement is partially due to the inability of the disciples. Not only is it partially due to the impossibility of the case, but by the inability of the disciples. Verse 40. As he continues his account, I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. The disciples here are a little like Elisha's servant Gehazi. In Second Kings chapter 4, you have the account with a woman with a son, and Elisha sends Gehazi on forward, and he goes with his stick and places it on the boy and has to come back and say, no life, nothing. And Elisha has to go and stretch himself upon the boy and then he comes to life. Gehazi wasn't able to do it. 
The Lord's disciples aren't able to meet the challenge of this. Christ himself has to come. But the amazement here, as we note, that it's partially due to the inability of the disciples. This is proven, first of all, by the testimony of the Father. I besought thy disciples to cast them out, and they could not. Now, this is surprising. This is surprising if you just step back and look at the first verse of this chapter, Luke chapter 9. Verse 1. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Gave them power and authority over all devils. So what's going on? What's happening here? Did the Lord lie? The Father testifies, I besought thy disciples to cast them out, and they could not. And oh, how hopeful he no doubt was. Perhaps this was part of, of the testimony that he was hearing. Not just that Christ could deliver his son, but his disciples. The twelve had the ability. There was evidence across various territories of their power and influence. But the disciples are not able. This is the way it is sometimes, beloved. Sometimes you read the Word of God about what the Christian life is meant to be like, and then you look at your own life and you say something doesn't match up. What's wrong with me? Well, we'll see in just a moment. But as also, the inability of the disciples is not only proven by the testimony of the Father, but by the rebuke of Jesus Christ. Verse 41 Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. Can you imagine being on the receiving end of this public rebuke? Have you ever been publicly rebuked? Have you? You ever stood in a crowd and someone just hones in on you and rebukes you in front of everyone? This is a humbling experience. And it's worse. It's even worse when you're an authority figure. So the crowd's all there, and the apostles are seen as spiritual leaders in their midst, with Christ as the rabbi, and he rebukes the disciples in front of the general crowd. Oh, I'm sure there were some in that crowd that were loving this. They were loving it, because they had no time for Christ. They wanted to see him fail. They wanted to have him exposed. Now it's wonderful because he apparently gave them power to cast out all demons, power over all devils, and, and now it's not coming to pass. You see, you see, he's a fraud. Now there's no doubt those that were loving the apparent failure that we see here. But I don't want you to miss that the language of our Lord Jesus Christ here is one of rebuke. It's a form of righteous anger. And Christian, it does as well to consider the fact that as our Lord Jesus deals with his people here, he does so with impeccable, that is, sinless, righteous indignation. He is rebuking them. He is not trifling, he's not playing games, he's not making suggestions, he's not putting his arm around them and saying, no, no, it's okay. He is rebuking them. 
And there are times we need rebuke. You preacher, are we not justified? Is it not true, Romans 8, 1, that there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus? Yes, yes. Legally, we are justified. Legally, we stand in union with Christ, accepted in the beloved before the Father. Nevertheless, those that our Father loves, He chastens, and part of His chastening can come in swift and direct rebuke. A reflection of anger. You find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, how the Lord deals with them as, as, as the sin of the church, as the danger of leavening through the church, and the wealthy are mistreating the, the poor within the body of Christ. And because of their ongoing sin, their ongoing impenitence, many are sick, and many sleep. This is, this is rebuke. This is the inflexibility of our Lord to deal with sin. Not just in the wicked, but in the lives of His people. There is love in this rebuke, of course, because rebuke is loving. Read the book of Proverbs and you'll see that. The wise embrace rebuke. The wise say, thank you. Yes, I need that. They welcome it. Rightful rebuke is embraced and loved and treasured. Yes, get rid of your ego. When you have to receive rebuke, receive it. Embrace it. Rejoice in it. It's not pleasant at the time. If you've been there, you, you know it's not pleasant. You don't take rebuke and stand there and go, oh, that's an enjoyable experience. It's not. You get a lump in your throat, get butterflies in your stomach, get a sense of, oh dear. So this rebuke reflects Christ's impeccable righteous anger. We should not miss that. And you can see this carried out right into the end of the Bible. And when you read the letters, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you find some of that rebuke, severe, strong rebuke to the churches. Christ is in the business of dealing with the sins that are found within His people. You don't trifle with the Son of God. But this rebuke also reflects the disciples' wicked unbelief. Because our Lord says, O faithless and perverse generation, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? This is... This rebuke was intended to place in the minds of the disciples, and there's debate in some of the commentators Who's he rebuking? Is he rebuking the entire crowd that's there? Oh, faithless and perverse generations. Is this to everyone? I think it's for everyone's benefit, but I think his focus is on his disciples. Turn to Deuteronomy 32. We were actually in this chapter on Wednesday evening. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And here you have a song of Moses, but it is not, it's not all encouragement, this song. It's like some of the Psalms. They have their own rebukes within them. 
And Deuteronomy 32 is such a song. It has rebuke within it. I can't read it all, but it's... We looked at verse 2, or part of verse 2 on Wednesday evening, but, but look at verse 5. I think I made mention in reference to verse 5. So as he's dealing with his people, you see at the end of verse 4, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? So you see the language here as he addresses them directly in the song in terms of their past history, the wickedness of their unbelief, their lack of trust in God, and all the journey that they've had. Now there's coming in the midst of this song, rebuke to them, and he calls them perverse and crooked as a generation. Look also at verse 20. Dealing with certain aspects of their wickedness. You can see it back to verse 15. But Jeshurun, Israel, waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods and so on and so forth. Down to verse 20. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a very forward generation, children in whom is no faith. So when our Lord rebukes the disciples, their mind, being Jews, goes to Deuteronomy 32. We're a generation of no faith. We are perverse in our unbelief. I mentioned unbelief this morning. It is an ongoing daily battle of God's people. And it is not something to take lightly. It needs to be confessed every single day of life. Our Lord illustrates the importance of this in this passage. They need to believe. The father comes as one of the other accounts tells us this. The father comes and says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Mark records, Mark 9, 28 and 29, when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. So he says, the Lord Jesus says in his rebuke that they are faithless and perverse. But then he says that the problem is that with some cases you need to fast and pray. Is is there a disconnect there? Or what is the connection? The connection is very simple. Fasting and prayer is one of the clearest expressions we show to God that we believe that in times of despair when we can do nothing else, we believe that only God can do it. When you come to a point of dealing with something that's immovable, impossible, that no change can occur, and you feel at wit's end corner, you can either sit back and say, well, whatever will be, will be. That's unbelief. 
But the man who says, no, God is able. God is able. And he fasts and he prays. That fasting and prayer is an expression that God is able. The subject of prayer and fasting is huge. I don't have time for it tonight, but that would give just a brief summary and the connection of what's going on here in the passage. Their faith is in reverse because they came to a point where they couldn't cast him out and then they just kind of washed their hands of it in unbelief. Why could we not cast him out? You didn't press in. It's wonderful at times when we have very easy victories. It is. I'm going to take every victory in the Christian life. And easy victories are wonderful. And I would say the vast majority of our Christian life is made up with easy victories. Give us this day our daily bread. Most of us enjoy a very easy victory there. Our daily bread comes every day. But there are seasons, there are occasions where something will not budge, it will not move. And we think, well, it's just not meant to be. As a mask of our unbelief. Amidst all that is going on in our world, I think there needs to be a rediscovery of this. Not just individually, but corporately. Seasons for fasting and prayer. It's always difficult going into it, but it's, there's always reward. The Lord, every single season of fasting, every single season of fasting I have ever engaged in has always had encouragement. Always. To greater or lesser degrees. But there's always been a sense of encouragement. In one sense, what did we say last week about the Mount of Transfiguration? We said, really at the heart of it is a lesson on communion. The Lord took Peter and James and John up the mountain to teach them the glory, the wonder, the splendor, the benefit, the privilege of communion with God. And then he goes down the mountain and they get another lesson. Here's part two. When you come to an immovable, something immovable in life, what's the answer? Communion. Fellowship with God. Thirdly, the amazement is chiefly due to the authority of Christ. We have seen tonight that the amazement is partially due to the impossibility of the case and partially due to the inability of the disciples, but it's chiefly due to the authority of Christ. This is why they are amazed. 
They were all amazed at the mighty power of God. Largely it is true, chiefly it is due to the authority of Christ. Verse 42, As he was yet a-coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. Christ calls upon them, bring the boy to me. Read in Mark chapter 9 verse 20, that they brought him unto him. So there are a number of individuals involved in bringing this boy to Christ. I tend to think that it wasn't an easy task. And sometimes as we engage in difficult matters, there are parts of it that the Lord says, look, here's what you need to do. Something you need to do. Bring the boy to me. Note three things. First, Christ rebukes what holds the boy. Christ rebukes what holds the boy. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. It was the unclean spirit holding him. It had a hold on his life, was, was destroying his life, giving him no life whatsoever. Christ rebukes that spirit. That which was ruining everything about his existence, Christ rebukes with a word. Secondly, Christ recovers what was inflicted upon the boy and healed the child. He healed them. Yes, he healed them. I don't know to what degree he was healed. I don't know if his scars went away. You know, the scars from the attempts to throw him in the fire, I don't know if he had any scars from that. The other scars from throwing him to the ground repeatedly. But he was able to hear again. He was able to speak. And he was able to walk freely. He gave him back his life. And thirdly, Christ restores the boy to his father and delivered him again to his father. Yes. What a happy embrace that was. And the boy got up. And the Lord said, go to your father. And the boy's eyes fixed on his father in a way for the first time, maybe in a long time, fixed on his father's gaze, saw him as his loving father and ran into his embrace. I can hear the sobs. The tears are flowing. The gratitude is profuse. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. This is a wonderful picture of the gospel. This encapsulates the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He rebukes sin and Satan from the life. What holds us? Sin holds you. Sin holds you. It has a power over you in an unregenerate, unsaved state. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, sin has a power in your life. Just try to give up things that you know are wrong. Oh, I can give them up. Okay, go ahead. Try. And you will find that you will feel, and you will repeatedly feel, 
And where you may succeed in one area, you'll fail then in another area. Because you have no power over sin. No one has. No one has of themselves power over sin. In your nature, you are a sinner. You're naturally drawn to that which is against God. You're doing a battle against your own nature. You're guaranteed to fail. And the only one that can deliver you is Jesus Christ. The only one who breaks the power of sin in a man's life or a woman's life or a boy or a girl's life is Christ. And he has been doing it for millennia. Praise his name. Breaking the power of sin in individual lives. And Satan's sway, Satan's dominion over the life. Yes, we were once held sway to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. But God, who is rich in mercy, with his great love wherewith he loved us, he comes to set us free. He comes to deliver us from this tyranny of Satan in the life. Now, many of you tonight have enjoyed that. You know what it feels like. <laughs> you understand what Brainerd was on about. All of a sudden, you could see all the glory, the glory of sins forgiven, all the cross. I've heard about the cross for years. But then all of a sudden, you see it. You see the cross. You see there God recon reconciling the world onto himself. And you see yourself there, yes. Yes, that's the answer for me. Redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. And you run, you run there, and you rest there, and you take all the saving benefits of the Son of God. You take them for yourself, set free from the power of Satan. But he also recovers the damage caused by sin and Satan in the life. He recovers. He doesn't just leave you in a position where with all the sins, and some of you know more of this than others. <laughs> you do. Because maybe you've been on the path of destruction longer than others. You've got involved in other things more than others. And you go on a path of destruction for a period of time, and, and you wonder, is it just salvation? Now I'm on my way to heaven, but I have to live with all the circumstances. Well, there are some things, certainly, that we can never shake. Some things, because of a life lived in a certain way, that will never leave us. But there's also a sense of wonderful redemption and recovery by Jesus Christ, that he restores the years that the locust hath eaten, that he gives a sense of life in recovery and gives reconciliation in a wonderful expression of numerous ways, one of them which comes here, the fact that he restores also the relationships lost due to sin and Satan, the relationship the boy had with his father, restored Yes, of course, that first and foremost is our restoration to God the Father. Where we are adopted into the family of God. And we really know ourselves to be children. This boy didn't know he was a child of his father. He barely knew his father. Satan is such a sway over him. If we're getting the picture of what's going on here, this boy had no life. No family life whatsoever. But no, no. Now he knows he has a father. He has a relationship with the father. But it's also true in life. Christ restores relationships. He does. 
He can do what seems impossible. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. There's no end to the ways in which he tries to destroy. No end to it. But there's also no end to the ability of Jesus Christ to restore, to recover, to reconcile. Down through the eons of time, story after story, of the amazing effect of grace worked out in human relationships. As he was manifested, he was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, we all have our mountaintop and valley experiences with God. Sometimes we're, as it were, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And things couldn't be better. Sweet sense of the Lord's presence. The Lord's it's like a, a wind at your tail carrying you along. Fine seas. Progress is being made. But then there are storms. Real storms. Real hardship. Some of you have entered into hardship you could never have predicted. Ever. Some of you are yet to enter into hardship. You have no idea. It's around the corner. I want you to note something. I want you to see it. When Peter and James and John were on the mountaintop, what did they see? The glory of Jesus Christ. They were amazed. As they saw him, they were in amazement. They didn't know what to say. They were stunned as they were there on the mountaintop. But the very same thing happens in the valley. They were all amazed at the mighty power of God. They were all stunned as they beheld God in flesh, Jesus Christ, revealing the power of God, the authority of the Son. They were all amazed. So the Lord will have us on the mountaintop. There we will see him. And we will rejoice in those seasons. And he'll bring us into the valley to face the ugliness of this fallen world. Of an enemy who is relentless in trying to destroy us. And we will face it in a plethora of ways. None of us can predict the ways in which we will face the valley. The storms. Hardships. But pay attention. Pay attention. And you will see the mighty power of God. Have you seen it? 
Have you, have you seen the mighty power of God in his ability to save your soul? Have you seen Christ's delivering grace? Have you received his pardoning love? Do you know what it is to be his? What a tragedy. To be here tonight and in the word of God. And yet between you and Jesus Christ is a distance that will damn your soul. You can't stand away from Christ. You need to be in Christ. You can't be saved standing afar off. You need to come to Christ. May the Lord help you to come. Let's bow together in prayer. If you need any help seeking the Lord tonight, if you have need of any spiritual counsel, the Lord is able to do what you need right where you are. But if you need counsel, if you need help from me, please don't stay away. Even if it's just to ask me to pray with you, I'll be more than happy to do so. Lord, we bless Thee that has been so merciful to us. The hymn writer said that I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. It is marvelous, Lord. And we will ever express our praise and thanks to Thee in song. Grant, God, that we will ever see the beauty of our Lord, that we will abide in His presence. Grant, dear God in heaven, that every child of God in this place, whether in the mountaintop or in the valley, will, will see the glory of Thy Son. And teach us, teach us in those seasons of great difficulty and hardship, teach us to pray. If there be some here tonight unsaved, save their precious souls. Give them no rest. Give them no peace until they close in with thy son. Bless our fellowship here as we make our way home. Go with us. With those that are downstairs, grant thy blessing upon the food provided and minister to our hearts as we talk one with the other. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen.